Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. This evening's reading is from 2 Samuel and it's chapter 10. Uh, It can be found on page 313 in the Church Bibles, page 313, and it's chapter 10 from 2 Samuel. In the course of time, the king of the Ammonites died, and his son Hanon succeeded him as king. David thought, I will show kindness to Hanon, son of Nahesh, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanon concerning his father. When David's men came to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite nobles said to Hanon their lord, Do you think David is honouring your father by sending men to express sympathy? Hasn't David sent them to you to explore the city and spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanan seized David's men, shaved off half of each man's beard, cut off their garments in the middle at the buttocks and sent them away. When David was told about this, he sent messengers to meet the men for they were greatly humiliated. The king said, stay at Jericho till your beards have grown, and then come back. When the Ammonites realized that they had become an offense to David's nostrils, they hired 20,000 Aramean foot soldiers from Beth Rehob and Zobar, as well as the king of Amarca with 1,000 men, and also 12,000 men from Tob. On hearing this, David sent Joab out with the entire army of fighting men. The Ammonites came out, and drew up in battle formation at the entrance to their city gate, while the, while the Aramaeans of Zobar and Rehob and the men of Tob and Marka were by themselves in the open country. Joab saw that there were battle lines in front of him and behind him, so he selected some of the best troops in Israel and deployed them against the Aramaeans. He put the rest of the men under the command of Abishar, his brother, and deployed them against the Ammonites. Joab said, If the Aramaeans are too strong for me, then you are to come to my rescue. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come to rescue you. Be strong, and let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. Then Joab and the troops with him advanced to fight the Aramaeans, and they fled before him. When the Ammonites saw that the Aramaeans were fleeing, they fled before Abishar and went inside the city. So Joab returned from fighting the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. After the Aramaeans saw that they had been routed by Israel, they regrouped. Hadadezer had Aramaeans brought from beyond the river. They went to Helam with Shobah, the commander of Habadezer's army, leading them. When David was told of this, he gathered all Israel, crossed the Jordan, and went to Helam. The Aramaeans formed their battle lines to meet David and fought against him. But they fled before Israel, and David killed 700 of their charioteers and 40,000 of their foot soldiers. He also struck down Shobah, the commander of their army, and he died there. When all the kings who were vassals of Abedezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with the Israelites and became subject to them. 
so the Aramaeans were afraid to help the Ammonites anymore. Paul, thank you very much Uh, indeed. If you could keep that uh, chapter of 2 Samuel open in front of you, that would be very helpful indeed. Now I'm going to pray for us again as we begin. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do pray for your help as we turn to this chapter of the Bible. Uh, We pray for wisdom to cope with some of the the difficulties and complications here. And uh, we pray that uh, you might speak to us powerfully through this of the Lord Jesus, our King, who sends us out with a message of kindness to a hostile world. Please equip us and encourage us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we were hearing a little earlier about uh, Gafcon uh, from Paul, uh, taking place in in Jerusalem this last week, and I've been enjoying those video blogs um, over the week, uh, so thank you for those. And um, you may not have seen them yet, but I do recommend them to you. And even though I haven't been there, it's been a, a huge encouragement, I think, as a, as a conference, uh, to have these Bible-believing Anglicans gathered all over the globe uh, to, to encourage one another. Uh, it does seem to have been a hugely important and encouraging event, but it's, I think, probably been a, co- a common observation about GAFCON this year that um, many of the delegates right now are going back to countries and situations where their lives and the lives of their loved ones Uh, will be constantly at risk, especially at the hands of militant Islam, constantly at risk of violence and even death. Uh, So what about the delegates from England? Uh, What are they coming home to? Uh, We can ask uh, Paul yourself uh, later, and no doubt he'll be telling us uh, more. Uh, But we might ask uh, the question, are they then coming home to lives of, of ease and peace and and comfort, and simplicity. Um, I kind of doubt that they feel so. We've heard a little bit about it already. Uh, There are all sorts of institutional problems that we're facing here in England, and uh, we've certainly got those to face. And actually, what we're going to be reminded of this evening is that there is something. There is something that can threaten our confidence and faith. There is something that can slow down our outreach and Christian mission and ministry. There is something like that that's at least, at least as much as the threat of physical violence can slow us down. And it's the risk of being rejected or dismissed or marginalized by the people we reach out to. It's the risk of being cruelly laughed at It's the risk of shame and humiliation. And in the UK in the 21st century, uh, these things really aren't just risks. They're pretty much certainties. Uh, A few years ago, there was a sociological study done of a church in central London. as a church family not unlike this one, quite similar in many ways, in fact. And uh, one of the very striking results from that study was that in interview after interview with church members, right across the board... So many, many people were terrified about being open about their Christian faith in their workplaces. That's very striking, isn't it? You might wonder, why is that? Why is that? You know, we don't live in northern Nigeria or or southern Sudan or or parts of Indonesia. Seem on the surface to be a very hostile culture. And no doubt there are many reasons for that kind of fear in the workplace, but one of them 
almost certainly is that fear of social shame and rejection. And I think we're going to be reminded tonight that's actually really quite powerful and potent and that we underestimate it at our peril. Now, you might be wondering a little bit about what we're doing this evening, turning back to an Old Testament uh, book written thousands of years ago um, about events 3,000 years ago, so about 1,000 BC, the events in this chapter. How could turning to this chapter in the Bible possibly address this issue today? But I, I do think that we'll see that it does. Uh, let me remind you first a little bit about the context here. Uh, we've got some of the key characters. We've got David. Um, he is the, God's king. He is the Messiah the Christ. A few weeks ago, we were seeing him in 2 Samuel winning great victories for his people. He was establishing peace and justice and prosperity. And actually, the very, very attractive pattern that we've seen, uh, at least from chapter 9, is it's now David's instinct to, to reach out now with offers of peace and kindness uh, to people we might have expected him to be hostile to. Uh, so back in chapter 9, which you looked at a couple of weeks ago, it, it was reaching out to the household of his old enemy, Saul, uh, showing kindness to Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth. But it's here in chapter 10 that this reaching out with kindness starts getting really, really hard. Uh, but I'm confident as we look through what, what happened uh, in this chapter, and think through how it points us to our King, the Lord Jesus, and what he's doing today, that it will encourage us that even when it's hard, reaching out with kindness is absolutely worth it. Now, this is going to encourage us, I think, to follow our King, reaching out to his enemies with kindness, so long as, it's going to encourage us so long as we're ready to face rejection, mockery, all these things might come our way, just as, the, just as they did for our, for our King, the Lord Jesus. Uh, we're going to see this from the, the very first five verses of this chapter. We've got to be ready for that kind of reaction. But then we've got to think through, why is that worth it? Why is that worth facing? Well, partly because we can be sure of the justice and peace that he is bringing about. Those things are definitely going to happen. There is going to be a victory, and no amount of opposition or mockery can take away from it. And uh, we're going to see that from the rest of the chapter. Okay, so then, in two parts, 2 Samuel 10, an encouragement to follow our king, reaching out to our enemies with kindness. But first of all, verses 1 to 5, ready to be mocked. Realistic, in other words, about the dangers, ready to be mocked for the sake of the king. Okay, let me remind you of the context again. David has established peace and justice and prosperity in the nation of Israel. It's looking pretty good in many ways. But to the east of the land lies the nation of Ammon. And because, verse 1 here, the king of the Ammonites has died, a diplomatic opportunity, if you like, has come up. Now, we don't know, quite know the background to all of this. We don't quite know how Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, showed kindness to David in the past. But David can remember it. It was clearly very important to him, and he wants to show a similar kindness to Hanan, uh, his son. So this is the very attractive pattern we're seeing across these chapters of 2 Samuel. Having established peace in his own nation, it's now David's instinct to reach out with offers and of peace and kindness to those around him. 
uh, these are people we might have expected him to be hostile to. Okay, so verse two, perhaps quite surprisingly, David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanan concerning his father. And we can imagine, I think, David's messengers setting off from Jerusalem in good spirits. You know, they have a great king sending them. They have a strong king. And he's also a kind king. Some of them may have personally witnessed the extraordinary kindness he showed to Mephibosheth, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago. And and now this kind of unexpected kindness is spreading, and it must have felt great to have been a, a part of it, quite exhilarating to have been a part of it. But reaching out with kindness to people who have historically been your enemies is a risky business. It always has been, and I guess it always will be. So look at verse 3 with me. This is what happened when the delegation arrives. The Ammonite commanders simply cannot believe that these people have come with peaceful intent. The Ammonite nobles said to Hanan, their lord, do you really think David's honoring your father by sending men to you to express sympathy? David sent them to you to explore the city and spy it out and overthrow it? They simply cannot believe that these people have come with peace. And so they cruelly humiliate these messengers and send them packing. Verse 4. So Hanan seized David, David's men, shaved off half of each man's beard, cut off their garments in the middle at the buttocks, and sent them away. And our translation doesn't hold back on the details here. Their clothes were cut in half at the hips, which would indeed have exposed their buttocks, plus a few other things too, if you think about it, but don't think about it too long. So they're having to go home half naked, with half a beard each, and no dignity. Human beings are sadly very capable of extraordinary levels of cruelty. They are extraordinarily creative in their cruelty sometimes. But I think this is cruelty taken to quite a high level, isn't it? Now, before we think about um, the implications of this for ourselves, I just want to, to, to pause here and, and imagine, I want you to imagine yourselves back as the first readers of 2 Samuel. Imagine yourself as one of God's people reading this or hearing this read to you. Uh, soon after it was first written, so well over two and a half thousand years ago. Uh, it would have been after David's death, and almost a, certainly a very dark and difficult time for the nation. How would this chapter have left those people? Well, I think it uh, would have left them yearning for a king like David, for a king with the strength and kindness to want to reach out to bring peace in a desperately broken world. Um, I imagine those people back then would have been praying for such a king. Uh, But this episode, this episode would also have left them very aware of the difficulty, the difficulty of reaching out with kindness to hostile people. And so I think probably additionally that they would have, they would be yearning for a king strong enough to deal with that, to deal with such hostility. Uh, With justice, yes, we'll think about that in the second half of the chapter. But also a king, as he drew his people into 
all that he's doing, reaching out with peace, he would be able to sympathize and care when things went wrong. And you can see that here in verse 5, what David is like. He sends help to his humiliated envoys. He encourages them to stay in Jericho until their beards have grown back. Uh, He is one who is able to sympathize with everything they're going through and to care for them as well. Well then, as we come back to uh, the present, to Fullwood at the beginning of the 21st century, I I simply want to remind you this evening, we have such a king. We have such a king. He's already come. In fact, in Jesus we have a greater king than the king they would have been yearning for. Uh, So like David's, right at the heart of Jesus' identity of mission in the world is to reach out with an offer of kindness to his enemies. That's what he came to do. And like David, Jesus wants to draw his people into what he's doing. He sends them out as envoys of peace into a potentially mocking and hostile world. But I do want to point out that Jesus has gone much, much further than David in taking the lead in all of this embracing and bearing all that mockery and hostility himself. In Jesus, we have got a king who's gone ahead of us. He's leading the way. And his offering peace of peace and forgiveness took him to the cross. And yes, the primary suffering of the cross was a spiritual suffering. He was bearing the, the weight of sin and death and the curse of God. And yes, the suffering of the God was, of course, acutely physical, But the suffering of the cross was also deeply social and emotional. You know, it was accompanied by a kind of mockery and derision, even worse than that suffered by the men here. It itself was the most deliberately shameful, degrading, and publicly humiliating form of execution. And it left most people watching thinking the worst of him, thinking him a failure, a fraud cursed by God, cursed by the God he claimed to be the son of. Okay, so how is this helpful? How is this helpful to the person fed up with being dismissed or or marginalized by family, friends, or or colleagues? How is this helpful uh, when the best we can expect from speaking about Jesus is is a kind of awkward silence? I've got to remember very vividly, very early on in my, my Christian at life, speaking to friends at an occasion, and just this really very, very awkward silence that seemed to go on for a very long time indeed. How is knowing about Jesus like this helpful uh, when people, people we speak to simply cannot believe that we're speaking with good intent, and they automatically react with suspicion and hostility? much as the way you might react to a cold cold call sales pitch on the the telephone. How is this helpful when we're tongue-tied by the fear of being mocked or laughed at? Well, remember this. Remember, he knows what it feels like. He absolutely knows what it feels like and much, much, much more. And he embraced all of that. He embraced that shame because he knew it was worth it for our sakes. And he expects us to understand that it's worth it too. He expects us to understand it 
for the sake of others and for the sake of the joy and the peace he's set before us. Okay then, so the part of what makes this outreach to a hostile world, this offer of peace to a hostile world, part of what makes this possible for us is knowing that the king who sends us out and he said that he's sending us out like sheep among wolves, is that he understands what we're facing and he will care for us. But the other part of it, what makes it possible, is knowing for sure that we have a king who will guarantee our final security, who will bring us vindication in the end, who will bring justice to the world in the end, who will bring the peace he promises, who are going to clear up any wrongdoing, deal with any shame, deal with all the disgrace. And this, I think, is what the second half of our chapter addresses. Uh, We're following the king, remember, reaching out to his enemies with kindness. We are, hopefully, ready to be mocked. We're kind of expecting that now. But now we also want to be confident in his final victory and justice. This is verses 6 through to 19. Confident in our king's justice and victory in the end, confident that it is God's will to defeat his enemies, to restore his name, vindicate his messengers. And all of this, despite the kind of magnitude and relentless, aggressive hostility of the opposition. Okay, so let's pick up the story again. Uh, Hanan, king of the Ammonites, has shamed and disgraced David's messengers in the most extreme way he could think of. It's quite imaginative but it's deeply humiliating. And that, of course, would have been a huge affront to David himself. What happened next? Well, it wasn't long before the magnitude of what the Ammonites had done sunk in for them. Uh, Look at verse 6 with me. Uh, The Ammonites realized that they had become an offense to David's nostrils, uh, which is just a way of saying... They provoked his anger. Shame a king's messengers. And not surprisingly, you provoke the the anger of the king. You become an offensive stench to him. Should have been obvious when they were doing it. Uh, But the Ammonites seem to have got so carried away with all the cruel fun of mocking David's delegation. It's only at this point they realize quite what they've done. And all the diplomatic implications. This is their kind of, oh no, moments, if you like. It's like that moment when it dawns on some school bullies that the elder brother of the boy that they've been bullying has a black belt in karate. His father is a policeman and his uncle is the headmaster. But what the Ammonites do at this point here is react to this realization not by suing for peace, which of course is what they should have done, They react by compounding their foolishness. They hire as many mercenaries as they possibly can. You can see verse 6, 20,000 Aramean, that's his Syrian foot soldiers from the north and northeast. Another 1,000 men from the king of Makkah and a further 12,000 from Tob. So 33,000 soldiers altogether, which is no uh, small army. Uh, These are just extra soldiers, uh, trained soldiers, mercenaries. And the rest of the chapter is the, the, the lengthy account of what it took to defeat this army. 
And I think the point the author seems to be making here is that from all this detail, all this description of all this fighting, is that the true king will act to vindicate his people and he will bring justice whatever the scale of the opposition. Uh, Even when it's as strong as this, even when it's as relentless as this, So this is how it goes. To begin with, verse 7, David sent his commander, Joab, with all the Israelite fighting men. Uh, But even with the entire army, it wasn't an easy thing. Verse 9, Joab finds himself pretty much surrounded. He's got the the mercenary Aramean army in front of him in the open countryside. The Ammonites behind, they're sort of nearer the Ammonite city. Um, What does he decide to do? Well, they split the forces and he puts pressure on the mercenaries in front of him. And that's a successful strategy because they run away. And when they run away, the Ammonites give up too and sort of go back into the city. You might have hoped, I guess, that that would have been the end of it. But no. The Arameans regroup, verse 15. And then David himself has to lead the whole of Israel out to challenge them. And then at last, at last, final victory is won. And when final victory is won, David's political influence spreads. It spreads even wider still. And finally, finally, there is justice and peace. I think this again uh, illustrates for us what hostility to the Christ is like when the enemies of God and his king feel threatened. What do they do? Well, they lash out. They're like a stray cat cornered in an alleyway. Notice that all the violence here is initiated by the Ammonites or the Arameans. They're they're relentless. They they won't let it go. And uh, it is the same today. Uh, Many Christians today will still be facing that kind of relentless hostility, whether it's radical Islam in the developing world, or for us in the West, the, the merciless, loveless vitriol that we get from theological liberalism. But again, I want you to imagine yourself as one of God's people reading this uh, right right at the beginning. Soon after it was written, we're back two and a half thousand years ago. It's after David's death. It's at a dark and difficult time for the nation. And I think, again, again, it is all about David, isn't it? Wanting a king like David, yearning for a king like this, one who can step in decisively like this to bring victory for his people. And against all of the odds, all of the opposition, all that relentless hostility, bring justice and peace. But I think we can be sure, especially as we read on in 2 Samuel, that even then they would have been yearning for a king greater than David. Uh, You see, what we're going to discover uh, next time is that the events of this chapter form the background to the very catastrophic events in the next chapter. The fact that David is not fighting for his people out in the countryside from the beginning leaves him in Jerusalem with a little bit too much time on his hands. And sadly, that's going to expose a huge weakness in this otherwise very great king. So they would have been yearning for a king greater than David, greater than, like David, but greater than David. And as we come back to the present again, beginning of the 21st century, I just want to remind you again, we have that king. We have the king who is greater than David. And he's, he's like David, but he's different. He's, he's a king who's been fighting for his people right from the beginning, 
right from the beginning and will be right to the very, very end. In fact, he's already dealt the decisive fatal blow against his enemies at the deepest possible level. You see, on his death on the cross, he's disarmed all of the forces of evil and he now sits in victory at the right hand of the Father waiting for the right moment to bring all of his enemies under his feet. This is the message that the New Testament brings us. It's, it's no longer a question of whether there will be a victory. There's no doubt about that anymore. It's just a question of when. It's just a question of when. And I should say to anyone here this evening who has not yet accepted the kind offer of peace and reconciliation that, that, that is being given to you by Jesus Christ our Lord, well, this is your moment. This is your prompt, I guess. I was saying earlier that the Ammonites went through this oh-no moment when the implications of how they'd treated David and his men had sunk in for them. Well, the truth is, that is going to be, uh, that is in general, and is going to be a universal human experience. Every human being at some point in their lives or in eternity will have an oh no moment. It's the moment when we realize that there is a God and we've ignored him. It's the moment when we realize that Jesus came to us came to us with a kind offer of peace, but so far we have treated him shamefully. That's the oh no moment that all of us will face at some point if we've not faced it already. I just want to implore you tonight, just make sure that your oh no moment doesn't come too late. There's no time to do anything about it. And when it does come, don't think that you can do what the Ammonites tried to do here and knuckle down and fight it out. like that cat cornered in an alleyway. That is futile. We're seeing even in this chapter that it is a futile path. You won't win. You can't win. It's as simple as that. And why would you want to fight anyway? this This isn't some petty tyrant trying to force you to surrender. This is God's kindness intended to bring you back to your right mind. It is something that's not to be treated with contempt. And this is God's king. A king worth following. A king who has all of our best interests at heart. But for those of us already following this king, let me pick out one last detail from this chapter. This is Joab's example that we see in verse 12. Now Joab, remember, is... At this moment, this particular moment in the story, under huge pressure, he's got enemies in front of him, enemies behind. Uh, Now it's true that our our fight is is in many ways different to his fight. It's not with swords and spears or flesh and blood. Um, In many ways, it's much more like the fight in the first half of the chapter, the the fight to have the courage needed to take a, a message of peace out to a hostile world. And it's also true to say that Joab is a, you know, he's a mixed figure in the Bible, to say the least. He's often excessively ruthless and, and morally compromised. But I do think in this instance, in this chapter, he seems to set a, a great example of godly courage and dependency upon God. Listen to these stirring words that he speaks to the soldiers around him. This is verse 12. Be strong 
And let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. It's magnificent, isn't it? It's a great expression of faith and trust in God and his will. And Job is vindicated, I think, for that expression of faith. And as we try to, to copy that, the great thing for us, I think, is that we already know God's will in these things. He has given us, he is giving us victory for sure through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, be strong and let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. I mentioned at the start the, 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 that common experience of, of members of a, of a London church admitting that they were pretty frightened, pretty terrified uh, when it came to being open about their Christian faith in the workplace. Um, I think it's right that we, we, we shouldn't underestimate the potency of that kind of, that kind of fear. It does really hold us back, doesn't it, when it comes to reaching out with the good news of Jesus. Yeah, but it's sometimes, I guess, helpful to diffuse that kind of fear by, by working through some, some worst-case scenarios. This chapter might give you one example, the kind of thing that might happen to you if you go out uh, with a message of peace into a hostile world. Uh, although perhaps for you it's not having your half your beard shaved off and your clothes cut in half. Uh, I suppose we're a little less sensitive about beards today, uh, most of, mostly anyway. Uh, I, I think if it happened to me, I'd just simply shave the other half off it, and that would be job done, wouldn't it? Sort of simple. And most of us do go and travel with a spare set of clothes, so maybe that wouldn't be such an issue as well. But there will be something There will be something that frightens us. Some kind of humiliation that terrifies us. Just think about it for a moment. What is it for you? Is it the thought of being talked about dismissively uh, behind your back? That's quite uh, likely. Is it the fear of being ignored or passed over or marginalized? by friends and colleagues, uh, the, uh, the, the sort of social, emotional pain of, of getting the cold shoulder in so many different circumstances. Is it, is it the potential shame of a public reprimand? Many Christians will have to face that. But our passage tonight reminds us uh, these reactions to God's kindness are to be expected in a hostile world. And we've also been reminded, our Lord Jesus knows what they feel like. He has faced much worse for our sakes. And we've been reminded, the peace, the joy, and the justice he sets before us, and indeed offers freely to a world that hates him. Well, those things make that shame, that pain, more than worth it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, we are very conscious and want to admit uh, the fear we have of being mocked, the fear we have of being shamed, especially publicly. But we thank you that you are one who went to the cross for our sakes. 
who endured such pain and mockery that we cannot imagine. You did it for us because of your love, because it was worth it. Please help us to understand these things and send us out with a renewed courage in your name. And we ask it in your name. Amen.